Romans chapter 3, and we are looking at verses 1 to 20. If you're using one of the black Bibles there in front of you, you can find that on page, once again, 940. The main point, if you're taking notes, is this. God is faithful, sometimes devastatingly so. God is faithful, sometimes devastatingly so. It's not God is faithful sometimes, comma, let's be clear. It's God is faithful, comma, sometimes devastatingly so. And what we're looking at here is God's faithfulness to judge, actually. That's what we're looking at in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and then Romans chapter 3. And uh, once again, if you're taking notes, we're going to take that main point and basically just break it into two for our points. Point number one, God is faithful. Point number two, sometimes devastatingly so. If you're there right now, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole entire passage, and then we'll break it apart. Uh, now, keep in mind here that as Paul is writing this letter in the mid-50s A.D. to Christians in Rome, he's writing to a church that has Jews and Christians in it, right? He's writing really to clarify what the gospel is, because he wants to he wants them to be in partnership with him as he takes the gospel to Spain. And so really, as we look at this uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 1, we find ourselves jumping into an argument. Not that he is arguing, it's just he's laying out this logical argument, this logical argument uh, about how all people are under condemnation in sin. And you'll see here that he kind of posits these uh, rhetorical questions that he himself answers. And so he imagines in his head an objector objecting to some of the claims of the gospel. He imagines those questions, and then he responds. So you have objection, and then you have response. You have objection, and then you have response. So people are battling with him over some of the truth claims that he's holding out, that the gospel clearly teaches. So just know that when a question is asked, this is a question that he himself anticipates his readers or his hearers to ask. Let's go ahead and read 1 to 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some of some people have slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then, are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Once again, the main point there, God is faithful, sometimes devastatingly so. Now I know that we are jumping in once again to a logical progression So it might be hard to kind of get our grasp on where he's going with this, but don't worry, I'm going to try and explain this here. The reason why Paul the Apostle brings us to this point, God is faithful, sometimes devastatingly so, is because some people thought, I don't have to worry about God's judgment because I am privileged. You ever meet people like this? This type of thinking is probably more prevalent than we realize. So if we go ahead and, you know, we go out on the streets and we ask random people on the street, you know, who is it that deserves to go to hell? Well, I think we're going to get a number of answers. We might hear hell is reserved for the really bad people, right? The murderers, Las Vegas murder, the dictators, the terrorists. And, and right, if you hear those answers, it makes us wonder, well, what do we think that their get out of jail free card is? What, right? If they're saying it's for the really bad people, well, what allows them to pull the get-out-of-jail-free card? And it is those who oftentimes say, you know, I'm just more moral than they are. I'm a better person than they are. Well, friends, in our passage today, that's kind of what's going on here. Paul the Apostle targets this kind of thinking that says, hey, morally, I'm a better person than they are because of such and such reason, therefore, I'm going to escape God's judgment. And so he goes after that really hard. There were Jews in his day that claimed God's partiality, right, that they thought would excuse them from God's judgment. And the reason why they thought this was because, as we mentioned last passage, last week, Israel in the Old Testament was, in fact, God's chosen people. They possessed the law of God. And they also possessed the promises of God. And so there badges of religious honor that sort of summarized this these things that they possessed uh you know the law the promises they were chosen people god was circumcision that was the sign that god called the people to perform upon themselves to dedicate themselves to god as they were basically saying yes i'm going to submit myself wholeheartedly to the god who gives these promises right god promised that from abraham would come a multitude of people And so it was those people who were to be marked off from all the others. Therefore, you see the the connection between circumcision and being marked off or cut off from all the other people there. It signified that they were entering into God's covenant, which is discussed more in the book of Genesis. And so they took pride in possessing these things. But they, oddly enough, chose to reject the God of those things. They rejected Jesus Christ, God's divine Son. And so Paul directs them to the fact that they stand under a righteous God, no matter what they claim. They could claim partiality, but yet they stand under a holy and righteous God. Now, friends, we are not Jews who boast in possessing the law, but we do, in fact, have our own badges of religious honor, as we mentioned last week. We might be tempted to put our hope in something like, hey, you know, I prayed a prayer when I was six years old. Or I walked the aisle to receive Jesus Christ and I even got baptized. Or he might say something like, I serve the church. Or he might even say, I give to the church, therefore I escape God's judgment. I've heard people even boast in the name Christian. right? I know very clearly they don't believe in Jesus, but they boast in the name Christian over and against someone like a Muslim. And they feel so self-righteous. I'm not a Muslim, I'm a Christian. But they don't care about Jesus. 
right? That's boasting in something else other than what should be boasted, that is God himself. That's boasting in a name. Who cares? And it's this thinking, once again, that Paul goes after. Any sort of partiality that you think you get because you do certain things or are a certain someone. It could be ethnicity. It could be job. It could be all sorts of things. Keep in mind that that is the reason that Paul cuts away at this pride of privilege. It's because he desperately wanted to get the message out that all people can be saved. That's why he's cutting away at this pride of privilege. He's thinking that all people can be saved and, in fact, need to be saved. That's what the moralistic Jews did not get. In their pride and privilege, they thought that those others, those sinners over there, they needed to be saved. So those Gentiles, there was the Jews, and then there was everybody else. They just called them Gentiles, the non-Jews. They didn't understand that all people needed to be saved, included they themselves. But God is clear. The Gentiles are, in fact, guilty of sin. They stand without excuse. That's in chapter 1. But God is also clear. He says to the Jewish moralists, or even you moralists here, so are you. You too are guilty and stand without excuse before a holy God. This must have confused the and, and offended the Jewish moralists who said, we have the law. We have the promises. We are the circumcision. And so they went, they might respond and say, so you saying that God himself will judge me as he does those sinners if I don't love him? And Paul says, yes, he will. Not only that, Paul says, he goes on to say, you might possess God's law, you might possess God's promise in terms of Old Testament Israel and the sign of God's old covenant, but if you don't keep the entire law, you will be regarded by God as outside of the people of God. He says, you're going to be regarded as one of those Gentiles, in fact. This must have offended them, right? He goes on to say, and the sinners you judge, if they obey God, they will be regarded as the very people of God. Again, this was an absolute shocker uh, to, the, to the Jewish moralists. And Paul knows that it is. And so in his writing, once again, he anticipates objections. Just think about this for yourself. You know, if anyone has challenged your core assumptions, uh, you know, challenge your worldview, your deeply held beliefs about how you understand the whole entire world, your opinions. You know how shocking it can be to hear something new that undercuts the, the basis of your whole entire world. And so therefore, in conversation, you bring your best questions to the table. You bring your best objections. Or maybe you bring your most ridiculous questions because you think they are ridiculous. That's kind of what's going on here. If you read the book of Romans, you'll see these questions are regularly posited, and then Paul answers them. Paul anticipates. Once again, he knows the various objections that come up. And we have every reason to think that he knows, right? He's traveling around that Mediterranean world, having conversations with Gentiles and Jews about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so regularly, he would get in these types of conversations and regularly have to give answers. And so as he writes this letter to the Roman Christians... Uh, he states the anticipated objection and then answers it here. The issue under consideration now, at the beginning of chapter 3, the first objection he anticipates readers having or readers saying is that the gospel he preaches somehow undermines God's faithfulness. Right? So you got the hearers listening to the Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they sit there and think, what? 
This undermines God's faithfulness. This brings us up to point number one. God is faithful. You know, while this concerns very Jewish types of things, the subject matter is important. If you are investigating Christianity, let's say, you should, in fact, ask and answer some of these types of questions, like, is God faithful or not? Right? You want to know that. If God gave his promise previously, don't you want to know if God tosses out his promise? That's a good question. So you see how some of the questions here, while they are very Jewish questions, they get at subject matter that's important to us all. And we today are helped by looking into this first century document. It tells us who God is. It tells us what we need. It tells us how to be saved. Paul has already said that both Jews and Gentiles stand before God condemned. The Gentiles rejected rejected God as he revealed himself in creation, as well as their very own conscience. And the Jews, well, they stand condemned because they don't obey all of the law of God. They presume upon his kindness, right? God is kind in giving them promises, and all they say, they boast in is, I am, I have this privileged position, position in the world. And so they too stand condemned. All the people of God, right? How do they become the people of God? They, they need a new heart. It's not about the law. They need a new heart. They need God's divine grace to change them. The moralistic Jews who possess the promises, they might have responded. This, once again, undermines God's faithfulness. God's promises are with the Jews, but the Jews too will be condemned? Paul says, it doesn't undermine God's faithfulness. Paul says here, if you're taking notes, once again, you got God is faithful. This is a sub-point. God has been faithful to bless his people. God has been faithful to bless his people. Finally, let's come back to the text here. It says, then what advantage has the Jew, right? He's already said that the Jew is going to be considered as a Gentile if they aren't circumcised of heart. And the Gentile is going to be a person of of the people of God because they can be circumcised of heart. So then naturally the Jewish question is, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul's answer is lots of advantages. It's interesting, we might hear him say, well, there are no advantages, right? Because if a Jew is going to be considered as a Gentile if they don't obey the whole law, you would figure that there would be no advantage. But that's not what Paul says. In verse 2, you look there, he says, much in every way. There's a much in every way advantage. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Here we have the oracles of God. It is to the Old Testament Jews, or to the moralistic Jews even that he's writing to here, they have been entrusted with the law, the oracles of God, or the word of God, right? That's a legit benefit. Now, we might wonder how exactly is having God's word or having God's law a blessing? This divine revelation pointed sinful people in the direction of how things should be. Right? It reveals God himself and appointed sinful people to how things should be, right? I find that really helpful. So let me, let me speak to the children here. If you consider yourself a child, we're thinking about how is God's word a blessing? Let's think about this. Of course, this applies to the adults as well. But kids, imagine yourself being neighbors to families who sacrifice their children to their so-called gods in hopes that God would give them, your parents, more children, right? Are you feeling secure here? Are you feeling insecure? Are you feeling comforted or are you feeling threatened? That's a legitimate question because in this day, right, the surrounding nations actually did that. I mean, people have been doing it for thousands of years, actually. So, right, that's a real question. If God himself comes along and says, wait a minute, that is sin. 
I cherish life. We want life to flourish. Here is a law. Child sacrifice is condemned. And in fact, in order to love your people, you must first love me. And when you love me, then you will learn to love your neighbor, which includes your very own family. And you won't sacrifice your children to the flames. Right? Is that is that a helpful thing or is that not a helpful thing? That's a helpful thing, I think. And I hope you would agree with that. You can apply this to all sorts of things, right? I mean, just really, just imagine, right, if there was no law, which a lot of people believe that there really is no law today, but if there really was no uh, fixed law and your next-door neighbor actually thought, you know what, I can wipe people off the face of the earth and that's okay. Do you want to live next to a neighbor like that? Is that a good thing or is it a better thing that there would actually be a law that says you shouldn't kill people? It's a good thing. You can think about coveting. You can think about stealing. Uh, and I've used this example before, but, and I heard this from a friend. I thought it was just so compelling, right? And I, and I use this example. It has to do with stealing. And I implement it in my home to talk about how we should, how God wants there to be truth and how God doesn't want people to lie. So one of, I heard this one preacher. He went on to say, just imagine it today. You know, if there was no law and we just thought, you know, stealing was okay. Just imagine if we were a family, what kind of family that would be if stealing were okay. All the things that you labor so hard for, the Lord gives you money, maybe you buy something to have your family secure. You know, your transportation, your $4,000 car that allows you to get to work, that allows you to provide for your family, etc. Now, what if your family member thought it was okay to take that and sell it and to take their money for themselves? That's not a good world. So sometimes if we are wrestling with truthfulness and lying in the home, I'll say, okay, hey, look, just, just to let you know, like, if I couldn't be trusted, if I'm going to say one thing and then not do it on purpose in order to trick you and fool you, right, how would that make you feel? It doesn't take very many questions to for us to determine that, gosh, you know what, that family wouldn't be very nice. I think it's good that there would actually be a law. So if you are visiting with us, you know, some see God, some see God as a big bad lawmaker. I don't. I love God's law. Without God's law, there would be complete anarchy. We can love God, God's law for so many different reasons. It is genuinely helpful, right? It reveals the character of God, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his love. It points us to the way things ought to be. And we all need it. Once again, we know this is true, right? We can turn on the television, read the news reports from Sunday, still going on today in relation to what happened in Las Vegas, and we know that things are not good. We know that God created man to be in a perfect relationship with him, but man has rebelled against him. They threw off God's law and became a law unto themselves. They basically determined what is right and wrong for themselves, and this is what we're left with, friends. All the stuff here on earth, and if you know your very own self, you know that you don't need to turn on the television or the news reports to find out that we are all sinners and in need of an outside law. We are in need of an outside justice, an outside righteousness. So when he speaks to humans, friends, it is good revelation as he reveals how we can live under his good rule. Friends, Christians understand this. This is why the church's statement of faith, our church's statement of faith says this, the Holy Bible is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. A perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. 
The Bible is where we go to. It's where we get God's understanding of things and His wisdom for us. So for all of life and all the things that ought to be believed in and to be held up as good, we just go to the Word of God. It reveals to us the very heart of God, His desires, His righteousness, and His standards. And again, we need this objective, heavenly standard to know what, in fact, is right and wrong. We need it to evaluate situations that are going on in the world as we understand right now. I mean, friends, what other standard are you going to use? Be who you feel like being. That's what society might say. Do whatever you feel like doing. And even in a very recent, I think it might have been a Disney film, Moana, you know, she's singing and the the song says, do whatever you want. Listen to that inside voice inside of you. Well, what if my inside voice tells me to go get assault rifles and kill people? Is that a good thing or not a good thing? Friends, are you as non-Christians going to say that there is no right and wrong? I hope you see that you want me to say that there is a right and wrong. You want that. I want you to want that. God himself has designed us to want that, believe it or not. Thank God that as he, that he continues to reach out to the ones who rebel against him. And how does he do that? He does that by offering his word, his wisdom. And friends, we see that most climactically, most clearly in Jesus Christ, the word of God. He is the word of God that the words of God direct us to. And so we want to hear God speaking. We want to look to Christ. And if you want the embodiment of God's love, you want to know what that looks like. You, you should look to Jesus Christ. If you want to see God punish sin, We too can look to Jesus Christ as he died on the cross to punish sins. We can see God's justice. We see God's righteousness. We see God's love. Because there on the cross, as Jesus dies on the cross, he dies for those who repent and believe, those whom God loves. If you want to investigate more about this Christianity, let me encourage you guys to come to Christianity Explained. Christianity Explains, the class that we're going to have right here at 9.15, beginning next Sunday morning. So if you want to see, like, who in the world is this Jesus, as we're looking for God, we're looking for a righteous standard, we're looking for uh, God's morality revealed in the flesh, we're looking for God's love, we look to Jesus, right? Christianity Explained, all it is is the, looking at the claims of Christ according to his word. Who is this Jesus, and what does Jesus himself say about who he is according to the Gospel of Mark? So let me invite you to to come to that. We're just once again going to be looking at God's word, looking at the claims of Christ according to what Jesus says. That's 915 right here in this room starting next Sunday. That would be a great use of your time. Anyway, so the question is, what advantage is there in being a Jew? Well, the answer is God entrusted them with his very own word, his law. God said he would bless Israel, and he has. He has given them the oracles of God which ultimately point to Jesus Christ. But Paul moves on, just as his debater would move on. And next, the debater, uh, Paul addresses God's faithfulness in salvation. So we're looking at God's faithfulness. We already looked at God's faithfulness in blessing his people. Now we're looking at God's faithfulness in salvation. He anticipates them saying, okay, Paul, you're saying that the Jews are in sin, right? Well, if we who have the promises of God are unfaithful to God, and therefore earn God's condemnation, doesn't that mean that God is not faithful to save? You get that? I possess the promises of God, so they thought, because of morality, because they possess the law of God. But if I'm judged for my sin, what does that make of God's promise? 
Is God himself unfaithful? And here we look at this in 3.3. Let's begin there. And they say, what if some were unfaithful? Does their, un, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Right? If they go on in sin and earn God's condemnation, uh, does, do their, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God in God's promise to his Old Testament people? You get how that's working right there? And Paul gives the answer right there. Verse 4, by no means, absolutely not. We have this declaration. It says, let God be true. By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So God is always true to his promises. That's the declaration here. In this verse, God's truth is connected with his faithfulness. You see that there? God being true is connected with his faithfulness, his ability to deliver on his promises. He says, of course the Jews knew the promises of God were founded on his steadfast love. Because of God's steadfast love, he made a covenant with his chosen people. God always remains true to his promises, even though every man is a liar. This would have pierced the Jews who had the sign of circumcision, a sign that promised that they would be God's people forever, that they're committing to doing that, when in reality they did not love God, but rejected God's eternal Son. So the Jews who rejected Christ were in bondage to sin just as the Gentiles. But just because God would judge the Jews does not mean God is unfaithful to the promise. This kind of thinking was unfounded, he's saying. By no means. It was so clear to Paul that he grabs a verse from the book of Psalm, sorry, from the book of Psalms, it's Psalm chapter 51. That, that's the quotation there that you have there. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. Here's the proof, guys, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Basically, if you're, you're wondering, if you might be confused about the grammar there, he's just saying that God is justified in his judgment of a Jew, namely David. Psalm 51 is David when he confesses a sin after having committed adultery with Bathsheba. And David, he's saying, look, David himself goes to God and says, look, you will be justified in your words of judgment, your pronouncement over me. And he says, you will prevail when you are judged, or you will be declared right, or you will be in the right as you judge me, David himself, who sins against God. That's what he's doing. He's grabbing the Old Testament verse saying, look, even your forefather said that God is justified in judgment, in declaring someone sinful. You can imagine that uh, saying, like, how's that for God's faithfulness? He was faithful to judge back then. He's going to be faithful to judge you right now. He says this proves God's faithfulness. God is righteous and faithful to judge the sin of the Jews who rejected God's eternal son. And friends, there is no partiality with God for those who reject him just because you possess the law and the promises. But there's yet another anticipated objection, another anticipated objection. This time concerning God's righteousness. So the first one that we looked at underneath God's faithfulness was God still blesses his people. The next one, as we just looked at, is God's faithfulness in salvation and judgment. The next one concerns God's righteousness. Verse 5, these rhetorical questions continue to go on. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. He's basically saying if our righteousness helps to bring about God's righteous judgment, what do we make of God? Is he using our sin to declare his righteousness? Like, how does that work? Does it mean that he himself is unrighteous? And then verse 6, you got the, you got the same answer. By no means. Of course not. He basically says that this is a silly objection because you Jews know 
that God judges. Of course God judges. God judges the Gentiles, and so he will judge you by no means, for then how could God judge the world? And again, we see God's faithfulness to his own righteous judgment. Paul sees where this is going. I'm sure you guys see where this is going. Imagine how many conversations he's had like this as he preaches a gospel that all stand condemned before God. No one can claim God's partiality that that lets them escape uh, God's judgment. People are scrambling to self-justify, throw up objections, and the objections he anticipates just get more and more exaggerated, right? Verse 7 and 8, look there, it's even more exaggerated. But if in what I am saying God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? It's basically saying, look, if God's going to use it for his good, why should I even be condemned? And why not, he goes even further, why not do evil that good may come out of it, as some people charge us with saying. What does he think about those who really say this? He says very very clearly right there, condemnation is just. Their thinking of God, their conceiving of God and themselves is wrong. And so their condemnation is just. Okay, again, these applications may not be your objections. I don't think there are any Israelites here from the loins of Abraham in this congregation, but the ideas that they touch on are significant to us, aren't they? Is God faithful to his promises? How exactly will God judge? In light of judgment, is God a faithful judge? Paul says resoundingly, yes, he is in fact faithful. And his judgment against sin actually proves his faithful character. Friends, today though, you know, we think about today. People hear about God's judgment and don't wonder about God's faithfulness to his Old Testament people too often, right? But, They do wonder about his love. Does a loving God judge? Should a loving God judge? You know, if you're visiting again as a non-Christian, maybe you've thought about this. Is it loving to judge to not only have a law to determine what is right and wrong, but then to apply the law for the benefit of society? Not only to have, but to apply the law. I think so. More than that, I think God's judgment is actual evidence of his love. Is it more loving to society and to the human beings that make up society if the state, for example, applies the law in judgment? Is it more loving to a society as a whole for there to be punishments against criminals, murderers, thieves, human traffickers, or not? Seems like a simple question. Seems like a simple answer. Most people would agree wholeheartedly. Yes, it is good to have a law and then actually to apply the law in judgment. It's going to improve the quality of society if there were actual laws and actual punishments. I mean, just think about how you decide where to live. Would you choose to live in a society that does not have law and does not apply the law? Or were you going to look for a safer neighborhood, right? Well, if you have a family, you're most likely going to look at the crime watch. You're going to check out, see how many crimes were committed. At least you can for L.A. County. You're going to look at, uh, you know, how many crimes were committed in a particular area and then try and figure out where you should live, right? It's pretty common sense. So let's be honest, having standards and determining whether or not someone has gone against those standards is not the real issue. The real issue is not, should we have a law and are we going to apply the law? That's not the real issue. The real reason why people take issue with God's judgment is that we don't want to be judged. That's the real reason why people take issue with this whole conversation. We want God to have standards. We just don't want him to hold us to those standards. We don't want God to judge us. 
But this brings us right back to what Paul is saying to his first century readers. Friends, God shows no partiality. He will render each one according to his works. And as the Bible says, we are all unrighteous and have earned for ourselves God's judgment according to his righteous standard. Friends, he is our standard. And he demands perfect righteousness. And the fact that he is faithful to his own righteous character, which leads us to, which leads to righteous judgment against all unrighteousness, should devastate us. This brings us to the second point. First point was God is faithful. Point number two, sometimes devastatingly so. Sometimes devastatingly so. Well, why that language of devastatingly so? Well, it's because God's faithfulness to judge, I mean, doesn't it press against your own human nature to rationalize sin, to excuse yourself, self-justification? Doesn't it stop us? Doesn't it confront us with our sliding scale of morality as we compare ourselves to the really bad people, to the terrorists? Paul says, look, you're using the wrong scale. Your scale is not your friend over here. Your scale is God himself, the righteous one. And to compare it to him, no one is righteous. Look at devastating truth number one. All people are under sin. All people are under sin. And here, this whole point, or point number two, really, that concerns verses 9 all the way down to 20. We can just continue reading this conversation, right? Verse 9. Uh, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let's go ahead and stop right there. The opening question as he continues this, this dialogue here, or this imaginary dialogue, is what then? Are Jews any better off? Here he's thinking savingly. Are the Jews better off savingly? He asks a similar type of question, right? In three one, what advantage has the Jew? He responds much in every way, but there he's not thinking savingly. In verse 9, he asks the question, what then are Jews any better off savingly? He says, no, not at all. I have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. This here is devastation for all as they sit before a holy God here. And Paul's just summing up everything that he said in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1, he says that the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, they did not honor God or give thanks to him. God revealed himself in the stuff of creation, right? His fingerprints are everywhere, but they didn't care. But it isn't the gen- only the Gentiles who stand without excuse before God. It's also the Jews. And so in, in 2 verse 1, chapter 2 verse 1, he says, Therefore you, moralistic Jews, you too have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Why is that? Because they are hypocrites. They don't complete the whole law, and yet they judge the Gentiles for not obeying the law. And then they presume upon God, God's kindness, refusing to repent. They actively sin. That's devastation, right? Saying, you too, you self-righteous folks, you guys sin. But when Paul says that all people are under sin, if you look there, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. 
It doesn't only mean that they actually sin, that they actually transgress God's law. He says that they are enslaved to sin. That's what under sin implies. If you look at look at the rest of the teaching of Scripture on sin, right? He says, look, if you're visiting with us, if you're visiting and you're reading this letter, that's basically what he's saying. Uh, he says, we don't just break the law here and there. He says, we are by nature lawbreakers. This is why in Romans 5.21, sin is described as reigning over the non-Christian. This is why in Romans 6, verse 6, it talks about how sin enslaves people. How in 6.12, sin exercises dominion. 6.14 speaks about exercising lordship, power over man, over all people alike. Here the pervasiveness of sin is incredible. You just look at 11 and 12 here of, of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. I mean, uh, here... As he's writing here, God's word excludes no one. No one can be excluded. That's why he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. If you go down a couple lines, no one does good. Not even one. See there? No one is excluded. And then right in the middle, just to make sure, right? God's word includes everyone in this category. He says, all have turned aside. That's devastating truth number one, right? All people are under sin. Devastating truth number two. Every part of man is tainted by sin. This is in verses 18, or sorry, 10 to 18. Now these verses are evidence that support the claim that all are under sin. That's all it is. What is Paul doing here? He's telling the moralistic Jews who have the law, he's going back to the Old Testament. He's saying, let me grab all these verses from the Old Testament to show you evidence that there is none that are righteous. And all, and, and we, we don't have time to really go through all of these verses in, in terms of looking at exactly where they come from. A lot of them come from the book of Psalms. One comes from Isaiah. Um, but you can read them all later on in the afternoon. But you see there, he's going to the Old Testament for, for reasoning. Verse 10 there says, as it is written. And there's verses for confirmation. He says here that in all ways, man's being is sinful. It's really fascinating. You can just look there. like In verses 11 to 12, one, one person uh, called this the sinful condition. Right? It summarizes the sinful condition. All have turned aside. In verses 13 uh, and 14, you see here that he addresses their sinful tongues, right? sinful speech. It's really sin, their sin in themselves. And then they're so sinful, it spreads out to others. You look there, 15, 16, 17, right? Their feet are swift to shed blood. And then all of a sudden, their paths are ruin and misery. So if you stand on their path, you will face ruin and misery. That's basically what it's saying. They want to do evil. And the way of peace they have not known. But other than that, you see, you got, you, you got condition. Then you have their person. And then it spills over into society. But another way of looking at it here, you look at everything, all of man that's involved. You have their minds there in verse 11. No one understands. You have their wills, right? They're obviously doing things that are bad. You got depictions of their throat, right? Their tongues, their lips, their mouths, their feet, their eyes, thus their paths before them. They have ruin and misery. Their whole entire being is sinful. Everything that they do is is can be categorized generally as sinful. Now, he's not saying that people, so if you're visiting with us today, he's not saying that you can't do any good. He's not saying that you can't help an old lady cross the street 
and therefore genuinely do good. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about savingly before a holy and righteous God. What would that work of helping an old lady cross the street add up to? He's saying it doesn't make a difference, ultimately, because you're, you're, the scale you use is not your friend. It is God's righteousness himself. What's the root problem here of all of this sin? Verse 18, it says there, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Maybe you are someone like this who claims to love God, but you do not honor Him or fear Him as you should. That's what it means there, when there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's really important to know here, especially in a, generally speaking, a Christian world of America, uh, a so-called Christian world that's founded on Christian principles and things like that, even though it is not a Christian nation. Um, they can claim Christianity, just like the Jews can claim God, but yet there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, you might wonder what exactly that's talking about. That really goes back to people honoring God and giving thanks to Him as God, as the Lord and Creator, the very one who you are dependent upon for every second of your life, every breath, that holy and righteous God who's going to judge the world in righteousness. So to not have the fear of God before your eyes means you're not honoring Him as the Lord and King. And this is devastating. This sinfulness, the fact that we will be judged is devastating to Gentiles, is devastating to moralistic Jews, is devastating even to 21st century human beings as well. God's pronouncement of the sinfulness of man should devastate us all. That's exactly where things are going, this big picture. Paul broadens the scope there in verses 19 to 20. Look there. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law speaks and it condemns those who are under the law, that is the Jews, with the purpose that every running mouth in the world would be silenced in the courtroom of the righteous God. His reasoning here, if you're wondering and, and thinking like, gosh, like if, if the law speaks to those who are under the law, that is the Jews, why is every mouth in the world stopped? The reasoning here is, well, if the Jews have the right, the, have the revelation of God's word and they can't keep it, no doubt those who don't have God's word will not be able to keep it. I mean, already we know that they have gone against the law of nature. They have gone against their consciences, that is, the non-Jews, and they stand condemned. Friends, you know, as we seek to apply this today, can you imagine the guilty running their mouths in the court of a human judge? I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever fought a speeding ticket or something like that. And let's say you are declared in the wrong even after you've made your petition. Can you imagine just running your mouth off to the human judge who sins too? Now imagine if you, if you would want to do that, if you would encourage anybody to do that in the court of an all-righteous judge. Friends, this here, this predicament, our situation, our pronouncement that we are all under condemnation of God, we therefore should be silenced. Friends, I know that even now you might be tempted to make excuses and defend yourselves for why you don't deserve to be judged. You do this with your loved one that you're sitting next to. Surely you do this with God. If you're visiting, let me encourage you to look to what God has to say about you and let it work in you, not a strengthened pride or a stronger defense, but a humility. 
This passage should, should cause us all to shut our mouths from excuses, from rationalizations. I mean, friends, what excuse will you bring to the Almighty and righteous God to clear your debt? God is not a parking cop that is good with his noble citizens, simply paying their fines through their good works. He is a righteous king, and you have ultimately sinned against him and are guilty. You are condemned, worthy, God says, of his eternal wrath in hell. You've got to realize that your sin is a personal thing to God. Again, this has to do not, it has to do with not honoring Him and fearing Him as you should. It has to do with rebelling against Him. And friends, no amount of good deeds, no amount of works of the law or morality can undo your sin and pay off your debt. Just look at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in His sight. He says it's impossible. No matter how good you think you are, this is impossible because we are unable to meet the righteous requirements of the law. No one will be declared righteous that is justified in God's righteous sight based on our works. But again, friends, don't hate God and his law. Don't hate God and his law. God gave the law not as an instrument to gain us righteousness when used. He gave his law to be a guide to shepherd us towards the righteousness we need. Don't think that God is like a bad traffic cop on the side of the road with his radar gun waiting for you to break his law. Don't ever forget, friend, that while God is judge, he is also loving father. That's what, that's what I mean there when he says God gave the law, not as an instrument to gain us righteousness, but as a guide to shepherd us towards righteousness. He gave the law so that he might guide us to what we need. So go ahead and turn to the book of Galatians. Go ahead and turn right to the book of Galatians. You'll get to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then you'll get to Galatians. And I'll just summarize his his argument here in uh, verses 21 to 22. Look there, or I'll summarize it by reading uh, verses 21 and 22. And really, before I read this, he's talking about what good is the law then? Should we just toss it? Is there any benefit at all? He says there in 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Look at 22 though. But the scripture, same thing, just a, just a synonym for law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come, now that we can have faith in this Jesus, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Here, I want to draw out something. Use the word guardian for the law. If your parents leave you alone at home, they are typically going to put give you a guardian over you, a babysitter, someone who actually takes care of you. And this guardian has a responsibility. The guardian has a responsibility to look after your best interest. That's what God does. He does it with the law. And so the law is to imprison us that we might see our need for the one who can free us. You see that there? 
He doesn't give us the law that we might earn our righteousness. He gives it to us because he wants to shepherd us to see the one we need. God gave the law not as an instrument to gain us righteousness when used, but as a guide to shepherd us towards his righteousness. He has the righteousness we need, and while we cannot be saved in our own righteousness, we can be saved by his. That is Jesus. Jesus' righteous life. Christ's perfect sacrifice. Right. This is why God gave his very own son. He gave his eternal son so that he might live the righteous life and fulfill the demands of all righteousness. He gave his eternal son that he might be the perfect sacrifice because the one who dies on the cross needed to be the perfect sacrifice. And he, therefore, dying on the cross, because he is the righteous one, he can pay the penalty that we deserved as he dies on the cross for sin. So by God's good design, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And in our sin comes a desperation for the Savior. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And in our sin comes a desperation for the Savior. Why would you depend on your own righteousness? Are you feeling that devastation? Why would you depend on your own works as if you could before a holy and righteous God when you can have what God is? Jesus Christ is the very righteousness of God. Friends, do not be satisfied in your so-called babysitter, in your so-called guardian. Don't be satisfied with the stand-in, but turn to the real Savior, Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You can be, in fact, declared righteous, right? So if you go back to Romans, right? This is what he's talking about. This is what the whole letter is about. He says there in one sixteen, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, that is the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of, a, of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That righteousness of God right there that is revealed in the gospel is talking about his saving righteousness. We are all unrighteous. We are to turn to the righteous one that has been revealed by God. God is faithful to judge, sometimes devastatingly so. The good news is that our sin can be judged by God in Christ and the cross. This leads us, friend, not to devastation, but to salvation. Friends, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a believer in Jesus, repent of your sin and you will be saved. That is a promise that goes across the board no matter who you are, no matter what race you come from, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what culture, salvation is available to those who repent of their sins and believe. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that in your kindness and in your grace, even to rebels, you revealed yourself in your word and you revealed yourself finally in your son. We thank you, Lord, for your grace given to us. We thank you, Lord, that salvation is available in our desperation. We pray, Lord, that you would help turn even Christians here again and again and again, every single day, even when we might be tempted to condemn ourselves in an ungodly fashion. We pray, Lord, that a good guilt would sit in our soul that might turn us to repentance and might turn us to the blood of Jesus Christ that secures our salvation once and for all. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your resurrection, 
you have won for us full and free pardon of sins. In your name we pray, amen.